Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sebastián Roascabal, one of your hosts in this channel. And today we'll be talking to Professor Erin metz McDonald about her new book, Patchwork Leviathan, Pockets of Bureaucratic Effectiveness in Developing States, which was published by Princeton University Press in 2020. Professor McDonald is Notre Dame Dulac and Kellogg Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Notre Dame. Erin McDonald, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. And I'll just start by saying this, uh, putting this out there. Um, and I don't know if this happens to all everyone who reads academically or if this is specifically a graduate student problem, but we'll have like a uh, never-ending list of things to read. This book was on my list, and because the list is long, one tries to get through the book as quickly as one can. But Patchwork Leviathan is a book that is so packed with theoretical detail and kernels of insight throughout that it forces you to slow down. It's impossible to read this book quickly because there's just so much, which was great. So thank you for this book. Well, I'm glad that you experienced that in a good way. I It's a thing I've come to realize about how I write. I have this sort of, I want to give all the gifts. And so I tried to think about having a serious intellectual contribution in every single chapter. In a way, the chapters almost, they would have been written differently, but they almost could have been hived off as individual articles. I wrote seven articles, but I wrote them as a book. Seven seven contributions moving forward, different debates. So I guess I apologize for for making you read slowly, no, but no, I'm, no. Glad, I'm glad that you enjoyed it in the end. I'm very, I'm very happy you you did that. Um, so now, at the, at the New Books Network, we often start by asking people kind of how they first started thinking of themselves as working within a particular discipline. Uh, and I wanted to ask you a modified version of that question, which is how have your relationship to Ghana on the one hand and kind of your love of bureaucracy, which you write about on the other, helped you cultivate a kind of a sort of sociological imagination? That's a great question. I, I mean, I think my love of Ghana is a specific example of a larger thing that a lot of people can bring to sociology, which is if you have deeply soaked yourself in a lived experience that is uncommon in the rest of the discipline, you bring a distinctive point of view. And it gives you a position from which you encounter the knowledge in graduate school, and you can bounce that knowledge off of your own lived experiences and identify the places where there are probable issues with the state of knowledge. And I have different points of view from which I could have come. I am a working class child, my working class background, single mom, deadbeat dad. There are a lot of times I go to talks from education experts and I can see myself on one particular end of that graph. Um, That could have been a position from which I engaged a field and thought differently about what kind of knowledge I was encountering and whether it felt empirically accurate and complete to me. As it was, one of the more uh, uncommon experiences I had was that I had lived in Ghana for a year and a half before I went to graduate school. So when I became interested in political sociology in organizations, you encounter these generalized theoretical statements, often without stated boundary conditions. They're formulated in white Western industrialized countries. And there was this part of my brain that was like, ooh, but that doesn't seem right. That is that is not the way it actually works. Uh, and so that, that was a position from which I could identify not only, hey, there's an incompleteness in this theory, but I have a, a strong reason to suspect that this is wrong and that 
pursuing this project will have a fruitful payoff. It it both helped me identify a direction and decreased the risk of pursuing it. Whenever you start a new project, you don't want to pursue a project where you think this will only be interested in, interesting if you get one particular answer and you don't know if you're going to get that answer. So having seen firsthand, that gave me that confidence. And the, the project has gone really well and been really well received and has opened so many doors for me to have meaningful conversations with practitioners in Nigeria, Tanzania, Brazil, people around the world who are interested in trying to improve the states where they live. How has my love of bureaucracy helped cultivate my sociological imagination? <laughs> to a certain extent, if I'm being totally honest, I love the rule. Like, I love social order, and I love rules. I uh, was on spring break last week, and I'll just say I am the person who, when standing in a long line and seeing someone clearly trying to walk straight up the middle of two lines and pretend like they're not passing 50 people, will step into uh -huh. the gap and tell them, Oh, no, no, thank you. That's not going to work. We have order here. Well, so you're a guardian of order. I am a guardian of order. Yes, I'm a very assertive guardian of order. Because I just love it silently. I'll just say that. <laughs> I love it very aggressively. Uh, I, I love it to the point where I'm willing to get into fights with people at theme parks, apparently. So I don't even know why I love order so much. I don't. I, maybe I need to like lay on the psychology couch and figure it out. I can't remember how much of this actually made it into the the intro to the book, but... Um, I had a long paragraph written about how insufferable I am in airports because airports are bastions of disorder. And I move through an airport constantly analyzing if they just did X, Y, and Z differently, it would be so much better. You would improve people's frustration <laughs> immeasurably and reduce. And my husband is like, you have to stop. You are not in charge of this airport. Just get to your gate. Uh, so I think that there are parts of that that help me identify things worth explaining. Uh -huh. it, it poses questions, why doesn't it work that way? I think part of my love of order means that I'm also really drawn to positive questions. Why do yeah. things work well sometimes? Uh, which has, for me, been a really illuminating question to ask in terms of the sociological imagination. And your book certainly kind of changes the way we, we look and approach uh, many, many different things. And the first one of those is probably the idea of the state. So I want to start by asking you, how does thinking about states as patchworked changes the ways or changes the way scholars and practitioners usually think about the state? How is it different? I think for a really long time, we've we've kind of endowed states with entiativity, that they are unitary actors uh, that are not only capable of action and, you know, in, in a sort of theta scotch pole generation capable of having interests that they pursue as the state. But it's the state acting. It's this whole giant monster acting, having interests, uh, the state versus capitalists. And to me, what was wrong and really striking about that, that was, I think, in some ways obvious, even if you've ever been to like the DMV in America somewhere, but certainly if you've rolled around Ghana a little bit, is that there isn't a the state. The state is a convenient fiction, and there are certainly people before who've recognized that this language of the state is a shorthand fiction. But to me, what was really important was not just that it was a convenient shorthand fiction or that it required work to accomplish unitary action of the state, but that at a very foundational level, many of the things that we measure internationally and care a great deal about, like how corrupt is the state, how effective is the state at pursuing certain things, 
are by no means evenly distributed across the many organizational entities that comprise that state. And so we may be completely missing the story if we say, for example, the state is a four out of 10, when really you could have some entities within the state that are an eight out of 10 and some that are a two out of 10. And so depending on whether the policies you're pursuing are health or regulatory, you might experience a radically different level of capacity out of that state with huge downstream consequences for how citizens experience it and how those policies get enacted. And so to me, cracking apart that monolith, especially with respect to the capacity and effectiveness of states, and understanding how those ministerial portfolios of the central government operate sometimes very differently is a really important next step in our understanding of how the state as an actor is influencing so many of these other outcomes. So the state is not a thing. That's what you're telling us. It's not that there are no states, but it's more like the state isn't a thing. Yeah. What we call the state is this weird agglomeration of many, many different things. And there are, it does sometimes hang together. There are formal structures that do bring it together. But it isn't, nothing about it is evenly distributed. And so we run great risk when we make theory or calculations that assume that to be the case, whether it's interests, which other people care about, or whether it's something like organizational effectiveness, which I care a great deal about. And if we don't recognize that, then we never even get to the stage of measuring that so we can understand the contours of those differences and make better choices about those differences. And I think that the patchworked uh, image really kind of drives that home. Now, tell us a little bit about how these pockets of effectiveness emerge and particularly how they emerged in Ghana. Like how, how, the, how does that work? How do they manage to do their work so well? This is the, the million-dollar question, which we, of course, could talk for an hour about. I think the brief view, one of the things that I didn't wasn't sure about going in and figured out, both from the Ghanaian cases but also from the comparison cases, is that there are at least two primary tracks. And one of them is upon the development of a new organization that hasn't existed before. And it could be at the level of a large formal organization, but sometimes these are within an organization. So it could also mean the creation of a new unit within an existing organization. Those moments of organizational birth are opportunities for one of these hyper-productive groups to emerge. But somewhat surprising to me, there were also a number of these really pronounced uh, effective cases that came about as a result of the reform of an organization that had been around for a long time and not worked very well at all. And that was the real surprising story in a sense because the dominant idea is that reform is doomed, reform never works. There's all sorts of reasons theoretically as well to think about how hard it is to reform existing institutions. So that there was a viable path through that and that a number of these organizations really did come about through sometimes pretty quick reforms in the space of, I would say, uh, one to two years. You you saw really marked changes, uh, like a sea change might be the way to characterize it. So I think those are the, the kind of broad lanes through which this happens. And the core of the analysis that I see is that it comes about as this unfolding of a sea change in the understanding about what it means to do work in this context. And that has to do with a concentration of a certain set of people, with an, the, whether sometimes you might call it an attitude, some of my Ghanaian respondents might call it an attitude, a way of working, the way they think about working, a set of practices might be how sociologists of culture would think about it. And um, 
by concentrating a kind of distinctive cluster, what happens is you shift in that localized environment, in a smaller localized environment, you shift the shared understanding of what it means to be a good member of this group. And I think the core of the intuition is a very sociological intuition, whereas economists have everyone wants to individually maximize. I think at the core of sociology, we have something closer to everybody wants to feel respected by groups that they care about. And so if you enter into a space wanting to feel respected or a part of or belonging with a set of a group that you care about, that you've chosen to belong to, and the dominant way of doing something is X, there's a tendency to try to conform to the dominant way of doing things. So the, the prevailing challenge is that in a lot of these states, it's hard to get enough of the people who are acting and doing in a really effective organizational way into a space such that that is the dominant way of doing something. And I think that that's one of the reasons why many of these groups start out relatively small. So looking at the origin stories, often we're talking about uh, either groups within an organization that are small-ish, like on the, the scale order of about 30 people, or at the organizational level, the organizations start out small as well, something in the 100 to 150 when they're initially founded. But the important thing to realize is that this can scale over time. So, for example, really paradigmatic cases of anti-corruption organizations that are very, very successful now in East Asia, when they were started, they were started with 25 people. And those 25 people developed a really strong sense of bonds with each other, a strong sense of shared vision about what they were about, tightly identified with the organizational mission. And once that was in place, when you add new people in, they walk into an environment in which that's the dominant way of being. That's what you have to do to feel like a good member of this group, to feel accepted, to feel belonging. And by and large, new people do that. And so you roll up that organizational culture once it's in place among a small group, it can snowball and get bigger and bigger over time. So I want to make sure that when people hear me say sometimes it starts with 25 people, they don't think, well, pish tosh, that's not a solution to anything. But let's get into into the weeds of kind of the, the different moments you you outline in the book, because there's sure you talk about recruitment, you talk about cultivation and you talk about protection kind of as the big moments where. Uh huh how this, these pockets of effectiveness develop or emerge. So let's talk a little bit about that. And if you feel free to draw from, I mean, the many examples that you have, both historical and of from Ghana. For recruitment, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that all of these organizations manage to come up with a distinctive way of, of doing recruitment that gives the, I guess I'll call it the group, because sometimes it is a whole organization and sometimes it's smaller, that gives the group a higher degree of control over who's in and who's out. And I think this is really important because it's the first opportunity for differentiation. If this is being driven by a collective of, of a kind of what is the dominant way of being in this area, that opportunity to choose who's in your group and who's out is really often pivotal. Usually if you're talking about highly effective organizations that exist at the level of a formal organization, they may actually have formal autonomy over their personnel. They, The organization itself gets to decide who's in and out. But for many ministries around the world, and particularly for groups within ministries or organizations, they often do not have that formal power. They, In Ghana, for example, the Office of the Head of Civil Service did batch recruiting for the ministries, and then they pump out to the ministries the people who've been hired, and they say to finance here's your 20 new personnel. They say to agriculture, here's your 10 new people. 
Uh, and then within the organization, a similar thing sometimes happens. And classically, in organizational theory, the idea is people should always want more subordinates. More subordinates is a larger fiefdom. It's more power for you. So the the trick that these groups often employ if they do not have formal control over personnel is that they gain that control by saying no. And this is a really powerful tool that is often not used. They gain the control over who's in and out by saying, no, thanks, we're going to decline to take anyone new. And because lots of other units within the organization are happy to have more people, it uh, it doesn't ruffle any feathers, but it allows them to control the idea that the people who come in are going to fit in with their work culture, are going to be highly effective, are going to value that style and kind of work. They also do an awful lot of informal observation and poaching. That is, uh, in Ghana, for example, there's a national service. So students who've graduated from university do a year of service. Some of them are posted to the ministries. This gives them an informal opportunity to observe how people work, how effective they are, how good are they at learning, how fast on their feet are they, the kinds of skills and qualities that are important and valuable to getting work done in these groups, but are really hard to figure out on a CV. They can watch firsthand before they make a decision about bringing those people in under the heavily protected employment contracts that public sector workers typically have. The other thing that happens, and I think this is really important because it highlights a moment where this really hyper merit-based recruitment can look on surface kind of a lot like patronage, which is that these groups will often try to use social networks. Often in the modal version is they'll ask a professor that they know from the local university who the very best students are, not only in time in terms of their technocratic ability, but also in terms of their work ethic, um, that allows them to kind of discern these hard-to-evaluate qualities, these qualities that are not well represented by a number on a test or by a line on a CV, but that are really vital to getting work done, knowing that you can rely on someone to go the extra mile, to go above and beyond, someone who's really eager to be professionally successful. So they're using their networks to discern that. Uh, and these are interesting things because people often will say, no, this organization has no autonomy. They, they can't control their personnel. But if you start to scratch the surface, these these characteristics are are available to organizations in a lot of different contexts, not just Ghana. I've been having some conversations with um, collaborators in Brazil where similar things happen. So the opportunity to control the flow of who's in and then in some small ways also who's out. And this is a particularly distinctive thing, too, because of the employment protections around public sector workers, which exist for very good reasons in a lot of places. It's very, very hard to to fire people, even if they're catastrophically underperforming. But these niches manage to find ways to move people out if they're not performing. Uh, the most public versions of them include very high profile public firings for corruption, and those are instances that make a big splash, but there are also lower, less less uh, media-worthy versions of them where someone is merely underperforming consistently, and uh, some managers will say, "I just ignore, I just ignore them. I have not given them work in six months. I don't know what they're doing. I'm sure they're getting paid, but as far as I'm concerned, they're not on my team." And those send, whether the high-profile firings for corruption or the lower-profile versions of ostracizing them, those not only accomplish a direct effect of taking an ineffective member out and making sure that work is being done reliably by more reliable members, 
but they also send really pronounced messages to everyone else on the team. Every single young person I spoke to in any of these organizations had a story to tell about this. And it's not like they were happening every week. You know, it's not like we're bleeding people left, right, and center, but these became very pronounced cautionary tales that were told within these environments to help teach new members this is what we care about. This is what we value. This is how you have to act. And if you don't, one way or another, you will not be part of this group. And those those made very strong impressions on young members or new members of those groups. So that's recruitment. The cultivation, we're kind of leaning into cultivation with that last story. You hear the stories about what it means. But also, uh, this is a place where I think the really sociological insight to how organizations work is so, much, is so valuable. And it's a really important counterbalance to some of the dominant ways of thinking uh, like principal agent theory, where there's this idea that, you know, people are all out there trying to do nefarious self-aggrandizing things, and only the knowledge that you're being monitored from above keeps you from that. What I see instead is really a lot of young people just do not know how to do certain things. I think the most prominent example here is it is an actual skill to figure out how to decline a bribe especially in a context where it's important to save face or not to offend people in a social network, especially someone who may be vastly more influential and well-connected than you are. They don't know how to do that. And when we do anti-corruption campaigns, we act as though that is self-evident, that it means merely nothing but saying no. But it is an active skill you have to learn. And so what happens in these environments where people are very intensely interconnected is you have a, a core set of people who are on board with the bureaucratic ethos. They're on board with this organizational culture of hyper productivity, technocratic excellence, uh, you know, kind of honest administration in the public interest. And they become role models for younger folks. So it's not just that they're monitoring the behavior of the younger folks, but the younger folks are learning how to emulate those untaught skill sets by watching them do it. And again, the number of, of newer members or younger people who told me stories about being in a room where they watched the director decline a bribe and explain, no, that's fine. Thanks. That's not how we do things around here. I don't need a gift to do my work for you. I'm happy to do my work for you because that's my job. Then they had a script. They had a, a practice they could think about positively emulating and that reduces all of the cognitive barriers to enacting a totally new way of doing something. So there's a lot of learning that happens through observation, through emulation, by having a positive example of what to do. Not merely a sort of abstract, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that, but a positive example you can emulate. And then I think the final piece that you mentioned is this idea of the protection that they do, the work that they do to help protect themselves. There's a lot of disruptions. They're in these highly disruptive environments, in part because Many of the people that they have to interact with to get their work done aren't coming to that interaction with an assumption that they're going to work in this kind of hyper-organized, technocratic way. And so because they're banded together, and there's lots of them, they can support each other in the work of trying to habituate regular people they interact with to that new style of thinking. And here I think the Guinean commercial courts is a, is a prime example, but not the only one. If you're a judge in the high courts and you individually want to run your court in a hyper-effective way with no bribery, with no shenanigans, you are constantly fighting every single battle because every lawyer who comes in your door doesn't necessarily know your reputation. Uh, people don't elect into an individual judge's docket. And so you can't control, you can't cultivate uh, like a clientele of people who like working with you. 
you're constantly fighting an exhausting battle and you're doing it all by yourself. But the commercial courts, because they had a certain kind of judicial purview, people could elect to take commercial cases either to the commercial courts or to the regular high court. So you could cultivate a clientele who could elect in if they liked working with you. There were six of them and they all towed the line together. So people knew if you walked in that building after your first experience with the commercial courts or if you're a slow learner after your second experience with the commercial courts, you knew if you walked in that building, you better have your papers on. You better have your judicial outfit all set. You better come on time when they called you. They knew that that was what they had to expect. And so it meant you could cultivate a clientele of lawyers who knew what to expect, who for whom it was worth it to learn those new ways of doing things. It was worth it to figure out how to be on time and have your papers together because it meant you could also get a faster decision, which was beneficial to the lawyers and the clients. And they were able to cultivate that because they were a unit and they could do that signaling collectively. Yeah, it was not down to a single individual to like bear the cost. Yes. And they also build in a lot of slack, which is, I guess, the thing we haven't talked about explicitly yet. Uh This to me is a really interesting thing I wasn't expecting. And it was kind of confusing to me the first couple of times I came across it because people would just mention for one reason or other that they had to be out of the office. And there's lots, as I said, lots of disruptions. You can be called away because you were seconded to another unit and you just, you reported for work on a Tuesday and you found out you were going to spend the next six months in another ministry. It could be because you had, like, you got malaria, so you're out of the office for a while. If there's a funeral, you're out of the office. There's all sorts of things that pick people off without warning. You can anticipate there's going to be uncertainty, but you don't know when or what form or for whom. And I was really struck that people were mentioning that they had regular meetings with someone else in their group to keep them abreast of what was going on, that they had someone else who could, the language they used is just jump in. Yeah. This language of jumping. And when I saw it at first in the Bank of Ghana and then in the Ministry of Finance and then in the commercial courts, at some point I realized, good grief, this is a a really common strategy to have someone who has your exact skill set and who is up to speed on what your projects are so that if there is one of these unforeseen disruptions, there is no disruption in the actual provision of services and the work of the organization because that other person can jump in and, and carry that forward. So I think it forces a rethinking of what Slack looks like in these organizational environments with high uncertainty. If you look in an environment like that, it'd be easy to say Slack is a horrible thing. It's a waste of resources. Why would you duplicate anything? But if you understand how much uncertainty they, they face and how pulling someone out can cause these catastrophic disruptions, it actually makes a ton of sense to have Slack in that environment. Definitely. And so that's that's one way in which you you talk about redundancy in a way that runs counter to kind of the conventional understanding of what's good organizational design. And the other one is something that you've already mentioned that is kind of this critique of the principal agent problem and the whole like kind of monitoring as the antidote to any sort of bad behavior. And I want us to talk a little bit more about that because your book definitely opens up a new ways for thinking about cognition, culture, and their relationship to the state. And that is closely linked to that kind of to that critique uh, to those popular ways of thinking about antidotes to corruption that kind of runs through through the whole book. So to use your own words, you, you write that practice is far more effective than punishment. Do you go deeper into that? Sure. I think right now, most of our policy approaches, most of our actual action that's being taken in organizations is based on this assumption that every choice people make involves them sitting down and deliberately considering the angles, the costs, and the benefits. 
So the idea of punishment is that by increasing punishment, we increase the costs of an action. And then by implication, we think we make that action more likely. And I think there, my book opens up the idea that there are two big problems with that. One, uh, punishment is fairly good at reducing the focal behavior, but it's not always good at cultivating the desired behavior. Like I, like I said with the corruption example, who, how do you say no to a bribe is a real problem. What does it mean to do the, a different behavior? We don't just get the opposite because we tamp down on one. I think one of the great examples of this, there's some research that was done on um, traffic police in Ghana. And in uh, this happened to be an increase in monitoring, which is to say because there's an increase in monitoring of police, it is, it's assumed that the costs of collecting bribes will go up. This should reduce things. And instead what happens is they collect fewer total bribes, but the amount of the bribes they collect goes up and the total money they take in goes up. And so this effort to reduce bribery has increased and concentrated the costs of bribery, increased the illicit funds being taken in. It hasn't really tamped out the problem, but it did reduce the total number of bribes being taken, which was what it was intended to do. So it didn't mean that we got a panacea of honest traffic cops. So I think that idea is really important. But also I think um, these approaches that assume, well, if we just jack punishments, we'll get the desired behavior, ignores how much of our daily life is really just a quick enactment of habit or a kind of impulsive taste about what just feels right. When I'm teaching this to students, what I often say is, did any of you rob anyone on the way into school today? And the answer is, like, you didn't sit on the corner and consider the pros and cons of whether you could rob someone. It is just really not your habit to rob people on the way into school. That just never came up. You didn't consider it. You didn't consider the costs and benefits. It's just not in your in your habit set. And there's lots of other things that are in your habit set, for better or worse, that we do every day. Uh, and I think if we accept how influential things like habit are, what we're used to, our lived stock of how we know how to be and move through the world – it opens up different ways of thinking about what change in organization actually means and looks like and how we would go about doing it, not through a lever we can pull seemingly easily at the top, but through a more laborious process of, of rethinking how people are, what people are accustomed to of providing positive examples for them to emulate of alternative behaviors uh, to help them do the hard work of cultivating a different habit set. This whole thing is, is very interesting because in many instances of the book, you're kind of like the things you identify as being highly conducive to like bureaucratic output don't look like, you know, Max Weber told us bureaucracy looks like. I would like to know more about how do these seemingly unbureaucratic practices end up fostering bureaucracy? It's like, how is this changing our understanding of the nature of bureaucracy or what do we look for when we're looking to find bureaucracy somewhere? When I'm talking to uh, sometimes even academic audiences, but certainly non-academic audiences, I have to downplay how much I use the term bureaucracy because I think of bureaucracy as a good thing. We love it. Bureaucracy is order. It's rule of law. It's the idea that there's a set of visible things about how work is supposed to be done. And even though it's an imperfect approximation, people then make an effort to do that. But I, I guess often a more accessible way of thinking about this is something like organizational effectiveness in pursuit of the public good. And 
I think some of the reasons why the characteristics I identify as helping enable that organizational effectiveness in pursuit of the public good look so different from what Max Weber laid out is because he was kind of looking around an environment where lots and lots of organizations were playing by the same rules. Okay. And so I think about this as, uh, in, in nerd speak, it would be like hegemonic bureaucracy. If you look around you and everywhere they're playing by the same rules, then there's a certain set of things you can do conditional on that expectation that will be low effort activities that will help you prosper as an organization that will help your organization accomplish its mission. But many of the states that I'm looking at don't have that assumption that everywhere they look around them, there's going to be hegemonic bureaucracy that they can expect that people are playing by the same rules. And where you're dealing with that high degree of, or of environmental uncertainty uh, also where you're dealing with some scarcity in terms of the resources, the human resources and the material resources to assemble effective organizational work. It calls for a different playbook to get you to the point where you are able to accomplish that organizational mission. And I think one of your findings that's very kind of very powerfully illustrates this is the orientation of different people toward time. Right? How, for example, in an Euro-American context, everyone's always on time. In many places like Ghana, I would say this about many places in Colombia, uh, but I mean, throughout the world, you know, people are not always necessarily on time and not being on time is not a terribly bad thing to do. Right. And you find that a lot of this cultivation is setting examples for timeliness and being on time and handing in things on time, which speaks to, you know, that that means that there's places where bureaucracy is not hegemonic, as you mentioned. Yeah. So it is true that timeliness is a real, uh, it's kind of like the canary in the coal mine for yeah. the presence of some of these. I don't make a strong claim about whether it has a causal relationship, like because they care about time, therefore they're good at everything. But it is true that it's a very strong marker uh, of a lot of these other aspects of organizational effectiveness. I can at least make the claim even if it may or may not be causally related to their effectiveness, that it is very important to their sense of self and their sense of distinctiveness from other groups. It's a thing people are hyper aware of makes them different from other aspects of the public sector and about which they feel proud. So now let's transition into talking more about leaders and leadership in general. And one of the things you're writing with or writing against is the idea of a, or concept and accounts of executive will, right? That these organizations and these pockets of effectiveness or these very effective large organizations flourish because there is usually like a president or a very powerful minister that like inaugurates them and actively watching over them all the time. Um, but you you change your you change our 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 thinking about this and, and propose this idea of elite attention. Uh, and I and I want I would love you to tell us about how elite attention kind of changes um, the way we think about this whole concept of like autonomy within the state or state autonomy and executive will. I think the dominant way of thinking about this is, as you said, a hugely invested. I'm going to call them a president for it's a simpler way of saying head of state, a hugely invested president who wants to make something happen, throws political capital at the problem, throws resources at the at the issue and heavily invests in reforming, fixing, or creating this new organization or, or program that works really well. That was, I think, the sort of dominant state. And when you move through policy circles, it's so taken for granted, it is almost hard to get people to see anything else. The, the, 
the reached for explanation is this worked because we had political capital, we had cover from the president. But what I was really struck by is none of my cases had that. Absolutely none of them had that. And so I had to start thinking through what actually was going on instead. Uh, one of the early things I, I saw was that also from some of the secondary existing literature, you can see that the opposite of that is a problem for organizations. If a president is dead set against you succeeding, that is very hard for an organization to flourish in that context. But I realized that we have treated those two things like they exhausted the possibilities. The president was either totally for you or totally against you. And looking at my cases, actually, there's a huge chasm in the middle that exists between those two extremes where you have much less intensive elite attention. The president is not positively showering you with resources and attention. The president is not negatively showering you with attention and efforts to subvert your goals. There's a huge range in the middle of elite attention where they can be more moderately either inattentive, they're not aware of you or they're aware but they're not paying attention because presidents like all other humans have finite cognitive abilities to monitor things. And in particular, a lot of the states in which this is happening, they also have really imperfect monitoring systems. They don't, they can't make knowable what's going on everywhere. And so they have to make choices about where they're going to spend their attention, where they're going to expend their political capital. And there are lots of places that are just in the shadow of that attention. They're not high priority. There can also be places where I call it merely willing elites. The president knows you're doing something and he's okay if it works, but he doesn't care if it doesn't work. Yeah. And all of the cases I found of successful organizations actually fit into those two camps. Either the head of state was seemingly completely unaware or indifferent to the existence of this going on one way or another, or they were moderately aware and they'd have been happy to see it succeed, but they wouldn't have cared if it failed. And I think that's an important thing for us to start to be more mindful of for a couple of reasons, one of which is incredibly hopeful. If you are a government bureaucrat somewhere and you dream for your organization to be better, and a lot of them do, you don't have to become the pet project of your president to succeed. It is possible to do this. In fact, if the, you know, we don't know how representative the cases I have are, but uh, it seems to be the modal option in terms of what I've been able to see. But also because I think it asks us to really open up a ton more questions about why this happens. If you believe that effective organizations or organizational reform is only possible in the context of a heavily invested president who wants to see it happen, people tend to treat that as a sufficient response. And my work suggests that is not even close to a sufficient response. And we have to really think through the dynamics of how that plays out. Because there are also plenty of contexts that we don't talk about enough where a president had an existential crisis, they threw all of their resources behind making something happen, and it failed, didn't get off the ground. And so I think opening that space up and thinking what's really going on there, and just in brief, what I wind up saying is that the president supporting reform is an example of one way to provide shelter to an organization that shelters it from political or patronage influences and allows the possibility of something more technocratic to flourish. But it's not the only way to provide shelter. And elites not paying attention to an organization is another way that that, that can potentially happen. If no one sees it in their vested interest to interfere with you, 
you can get a fairly high degree of shelter from political influence merely because no one cares. And there's this other element that you write about, which is that even sometimes it might be desirable for you as a the leader of an administrative subunit of whatever state to fly under the radar and people try to fly under the radar. Yeah, the leaders of these groups try very hard not to ruffle feathers, especially, I would say, in formative periods of time when they're getting off the ground because you don't want to tick people off. You don't. They already are dealing with enough problems. The last thing they need is to call down the kind of attention on themselves that's going to lead to more problems. Mm -hmm. uh, in particular, I would say they're also... Um, usually the groups that I'm familiar with that I've studied make a very strong effort to present themselves as apolitical mm -hmm. in part because they don't want to be so strongly associated with one administration or another that a change of administration at the national level is going to upset their personnel or their leadership structure. Uh, and so that means often also minimizing the, the credit that they're claiming in some ways and trying to, uh, displace that credit for the accomplishments not onto themselves as a potential political rival for being so good but onto the system as a whole and really sharing the credit with the organization as a whole let's keep talking about leadership because and again in kind of these more popular or conventional accounts of bureaucratic su success or organizational success you know you have these st stories of very charismatic leaders that you know are we give them a lot of power in the stories we tell about the organizations as if they changed everything and they're, it's because of them that things, and their charisma especially, that things turned out the way they did. Um, and, you, and you accept leadership as an important explanation, but you push against the charisma side of that story. And you, and you tell us about the leaders of these organizations, but especially about their educational trajectories um, as something that really contributes to the solutions that they bring into the table and the behaviors that they're trying to kind of cultivate among the people working in their unit as authentic and as viable. So could mm -hmm. you tell us about these things that you call dual habitus and, and kind of the founding cadres of these subunits? All right, so I'm going to start with the model of the singular charismatic leader. What I think is, is potentially toxic about that, and it's a very pervasive idea, all we need is a fixer. We need a unicorn. And when I talk to people who do development work, that is a very, very seductive idea. We need to find a unicorn. If you find a unicorn, everything works. No unicorn, no works. The challenge that I realized as I looked into these is, one, the leaders, you would not call these leaders universally charismatic in the sense of being uh, highly attractive personalities who draw others to them. Some of them were reclusive. Uh, for lack of a better word, they were old school nerds. Uh, some of them were a bit bristly, prickly characters. They were they were by no means gregarious, lovable, you know, characters. So despite these widely varying personality types, they nevertheless had a ton of loyalty and admiration from the people who worked with them. Uh, unpacking some of that, what I think is really interesting about that, what is a different model in some ways for running management in the public sector, is that the model of the charismatic is the model that takes Steve Jobs and he puts him on a pedestal and it says he is a singularity. What makes him a unicorn is that he is not replicable. And that's really seductive for leaders because it implies that you are not replaceable. You are ne necessary. But when you lead from that 
assumption, you lead in a very lean way. You hoard powers to yourself. You hoard glory to yourself. I remember as a graduate student uh, reading a classic book in organizational theory and learning that what really differentiated people who got promoted from people who didn't get promoted was their ability to claim uh, claim to themselves wins and diffuse onto others' losses. That's a really lean and selfish way of, of managing that is very individually focused. These leaders, what accrued a lot of loyalty and admiration to them was that they lead from a place of tremendous generosity. They intentionally devolve meaningful powers and decisions from themselves to others. They're giving real power away to others and trusting others with that power. They are sharing glory. They're, you know, If you talk to some of the people in these units, they will have stories to tell about how excited and impressed they were to be taken to this important meeting and to be given this opportunity to share their work with the minister, share their work with the governor of the bank. That endeared the leader tremendously to them. But I think the other real pivotal moment for me of realizing that this was not merely not a story of a charismatic leader was realizing that this was not really the story of a single leader at all. And it that this was the last piece that fell in place for me because the other people in these stories are so sidelined because of this dominant model of how important singular leadership is, you almost couldn't see them standing next to, behind, around the leader in the narratives about these organizations. But I could see it in the real cases in Ghana, which is to say that to some extent, these organizations were not led by a single individual. Depending on the size, they were led by a collective of three to seven people. And that's not a huge number. If you're trying to get together people who have a strong bureaucratic ethos, who believe in effective service in the public interest, you can find three to seven people. Every state on earth has three to seven people who want to do that. And these three to seven people worked together to have this kind of deep shared vision of what it was. And they did things that an individual leader can't do. An individual leader who comes in with all kinds of ideas, people can pay lip service to that, but they can essentially think that they're a nut and they don't want to do it. this weird new ideas this guy has. That they're crazy. They're crazy. But the second, third, fourth, fifth followers who are also on board with that vision, you're no longer able to say that's just a lone nut. That's not just a single crazy thing. Now it's kind of a movement. Now you've got this idea that something is happening and the threshold of collective action has kicked in and people want to join and see what's going on over here. But also this this breaks a fundamental difference with the charismatic. The charismatic is not replicable. No one else can be Hare Krishna. No one else can be Jesus Christ. What's different about having these cadres is once you've got three, four, five people around you trying to do the same new way of doing things, it completely conveys to everyone else that this is an emulable set of activities. It is not only desirable, but it is possible to do what the leader is doing, to adopt these new and unfamiliar practices or ways of being in the organization. And that's a sea change in the way people think about that. And it also makes more models of that behavior available. Now you've got seven people running around for other people in the organization to learn from, emulate, understand. So I think that small multiplier effect of thinking about having a group with a shared vision on board 
and once I saw it, then it was everywhere, even in cases I don't write about, but that I, I think are very important and interesting cases as well, like Judith Tendler's book. It's in the background is the story of a governor of a province and a set of his lieutenant governors who essentially ran around the province trying to make sure that merit was exercised in recruitment and support groups that were trying to do that kind of work. It wasn't just one guy. It was a small cadre of people who started. And that's the kernel from which all these other things multiply out. So that's the that's the founding cadre argument. It takes a small team, not a single individual. It takes a small team. Once you get that small team in a really meaningful way in place and you lead from that position of generosity in the in the the exercise of real power and how decisions are being made, a lot of these other things start to fall into place. The question of dual habitus. So habitus is a, I mean, it's a admittedly confusing concept from uh, Pierre Bourdieu, <laughs> but essentially it's a set of things you're used to that you've become accustomed to that helps you sort of structure the way you think life is going to work. And once we have that set, we tend, it's like a, a set of ways of doing and being, and we apply those to different situations we encounter. They're really familiar. They're easy. They don't take a lot of effort for us to apply one of those common and comfortable habit sets that we've developed through lived experience. So one of the things that I started to observe when I was trying to figure out, was there any features of the organizational leadership, either in terms of structure or identity, that could help me explain why certain organizations seemed to uh, be more successful at pursuing highly effective public interest uh, administration, was I realized that a lot of these people had foreign education as part of their portfolio. But it was also a very particular kind of foreign education. That is, the vast majority of these leaders had done their first degree at a local university. And then they had received advanced training abroad, a master's, sometimes a PhD, sometimes a professional degree in the case of law. And it was a pretty distinctive pattern. And it also holds across, there are about eight other cases I looked at that I didn't wind up developing fully for the book, and it held across them as well. And when I thought through this and I thought through the interview information that I had, what I realized was that that was kind of the sweet spot. Having a first degree locally meant that those those leaders were very deeply entrenched, not only in the local culture and practices of the country in which they worked, but in the elite social networks of the countries in which they worked, because they went to that flagship university. They built those elite networks and connections with other people who were positioned throughout the state, throughout private sector, in different positions that could influence their work or help them get things done. But the time that they had spent abroad, it was short enough that they didn't lose sight of that local context, but long enough that they could develop new habits grounded in lived experience of being in an environment that was hegemonically bureaucratic. And often what, what people will say is, you know, to circle back around on time, they would say things like, when I first got there, I didn't realize that I had to actually come to class at nine. And then when I started coming to class at nine, I thought, huh, it actually, like, this works pretty well. You can, you could like, get a lot done when everyone shows up to the meeting, the nine o'clock meeting at nine o'clock. It's not the only example, but that's just an example that circles back on the time example. So they would have these experiences of lived experience that convinced them, hey, there are some aspects of doing organizational life this way that are genuinely beneficial 
they developed a taste for it. They developed also a habit set. They got used to doing it in a certain way. They knew what those practices felt like. They had those positive examples they could emulate already dialed in. And then they go back into their states, their countries of origin and the states in their countries of origin. And now they have kind of binocular vision. They can see both those things at once. And that makes them able to do this really amazing bridging work because they can see both of those at once in one person. Often development projects or efforts to reform states mean all of the knowledge, the local knowledge is held by one actor and all of the reform knowledge is held by another actor and the communication breakdown means that no one fully understands that other position. But when those two perspectives are held within one individual, they're able to come up with really creative, effective ways of fusing those two things to bring those uh, the best of both worlds into alignment. So that's the idea of the dual habitus. I don't think it's the only way to do it. And I want to be really clear that I'm not saying this is a great white savior. You have to have gone to the UK for education or you'll never run an organization. I think there's lots of other opportunities. And indeed, these pockets of effectiveness locally are becoming places where new people are getting that taste, exposure, experience, training that they're then taking to other locations. You just need some kind of bubble where you can have that personal lived experience. And if you don't mind, I'm going to tell a brief story about a thing that didn't get into the book. I wrote, little known, little known truth, I wrote an entire chapter on an American automotive assembly plant. And I wanted this thing in the book so bad, mostly because I really wanted to make the point that this is not a lack of foresight on the part of public sector workers in Ghana, Brazil, Nigeria, China. This is just that people everywhere, whether public sector, private sector, West, the global South, are very, very structured by what we are used to, by the habits and the systems and the tastes that we are accustomed to. And so even if you can know with absolute certainty in the 1980s that Japanese manufacturing was a superior form of manufacturing on every metric the automotive industry measured, that wasn't enough to bring it into being in American manufacturing. They couldn't turn the Titanic to it just because they knew it was better. But there was one plant it had previously been the least effective plant in the GM industry. And and Toyota wanted to do some joint manufacturing with an American manufacturer to break into the American market. And GM wanted to learn the secret sauce. And so each of them kind of thinking they were getting one over on the other, agreed to do this joint venture. And GM offers up effectively the worst plant in their entire place. And the stories of this plant are... I'm going to call them astonishing, like intentionally sabotaging things, people showing up to work drunk, people throwing screws into the door of cars so that they're going to bother people, uh, problems across the board, really tight problems between management and labor that have been characteristic of American manufacturing for decades. And in the space of about two years, they're able to completely turn it around, despite the fact that they hire, they fire everyone, and then almost all the people they hire back are the same workforce they just fired. And part of the core pivotal change in the middle is that they take, uh, I'd have to look it up to get the numbers. I want to say it's like 250 to 300 of these guys from all the different jobs across the manufacturing plant, from low to high, not just the management. And they fly them to, the, to Japan and they spend about two weeks shadowing their counterpart in Japan. So they are getting that immersive lived experience in what the totality of this system looks like when it works well. 
and you take these, you know, pissed off union guys who never believe that management would look at them or care about them, and you put them in an environment where they are literally moved to tears telling stories about seeing a worker stop the production plant to, so that they could fix a problem and not getting punished for stopping the assembly line and getting rewarded for helping make this incremental improvement to production. It, it was a radical sea change in what they thought was possible. And then you bring those guys back and they spread the gospel, to be glib about it, to the other people who haven't gotten to go, but they constitute this lived experience of another world is possible. And actually I've seen it and it's desirable too. And here's how we do it. These are the practices and the experiences and the ways of being that help get us to that vision. Uh, people, it just burned people's brains to encounter an American car example at the end of a book about states in the global South. But I love the idea that there is something more transcendent about how cognition and habit and habitus and the need to have a lived experience in an alternative reality, for lack of a better word, can be so transformative to to moving organizational change. Uh, you heard it first here, or however people say it on the radio. <laughs> Now that Patchwork Leviathan is is done and out in the world, what are what are you currently working on? It's been an explosion of really exciting stuff going on lately. I'm collaborating with the Brazilian Research Institute to work on, we're going to try to develop a measurement of the um, esprit de corps. So esprit de corps is a really popular and important concept in a lot of work on the states. And I would say it is absolutely a characteristic feature of pockets of effectiveness. And it turns out we don't have really good ways to measure or decompose what that is. So we're working on that. We're also going to do um, a multi-wave survey of the Brazilian bureaucracy to look at measuring and identifying pockets of effectiveness and looking at the correlates derived by a, a several different you know, working hypotheses, one of which is it's Weberian characteristics, one of which is it's some of the inverted characteristics that I identify in my work having to do with the bureaucratic ethos and culture, cultural components, and then some other classic ones having to do um, with incentive structures, with leadership, things like that. Uh, so that's going. Another project I am over the moon excited about right now uh, is a partnership that I've undertaken with the World Bank to study a training program that is right now being done in the water sector. Uh, it's, it's an initiative that's been undertaken by the water sector in particular. It was a training developed by some public servants, developed by the public servants themselves in Chennai, India. Mm -hmm. And what I find intellectually really fascinating about this is For someone like me who sees organizational culture as being so absolutely characteristic of these highly effective organizations, it opens up the question of the chicken and the egg problem. Uh -huh. Do they have distinctive organizational cultures because they were already productive? Or does a change in organizational culture enable more productivity? So this training allows me to tap into that because it is a training that changes literally nothing else. There are no changes to the terms of service. There are no changes. Nothing else is changing. But the whole organization is getting trained. And normally we think about if you've been trained in the American West, training seems like there'll be some dull video that comes on and your eyes will glaze over and you'll roll your eyes and think this is a stupid waste of my time. <laughs> This training is so exciting to people. They love going through this training. It is a four-day immersive. You live together for four days. You get trained with groups of about 20 to 30 people, and just week by week they go through. It is conducted by people from your organization, so it's not some 
dusty old white guy flying in from Holland to tell you how to be. It's very <laughs> inductively, uh, it's, it's grounded in the person's own value system. So it's not the organization telling you, you sh- these are the McDonald's values, get on board. It's tapping into people's own deeply held internal values and connecting them to the work that they do at the organization. And some of the results coming out are just astonishing in terms of the ability of unleashing the intrinsic motivation and the creativity and problem solving of everyday public sector workers on the front lines. And so I think it I'm really excited about the potential for us to say, yes, actually, you can catalyze real performance improvements by intervening at the level of organizational culture. Uh, it is possible. It is doable. It has these really impressive results. Um, and, and honestly, it's actually it's pretty cheap on the whole it, it, relative to other forms of reform. And people love it. And then I am launching a five year research project to go back to Ghana. And it was funded by an NSF career grant. And what it's going to let me do is ask the other kind of another follow on question, which is, okay, you let's say you've got a pocket of effectiveness. Now what? The big million dollar question I frequently get once people buy into the idea that these exist and then they want to know how do you get one and then they want to know how can you spread them? Like, is this the seed through which a sea change will happen? So I'm going to go back and yeah, I'm going to go back and look at the case of the Ghanaian commercial courts, which at the time that I first did the research were just located in the capital city. And since then, two important efforts to diffuse that organizational effectiveness have taken place. So it'll allow me to test a couple different hypotheses against these two places. One is a, a, a replication of the institutional model throughout Ghana's region. So now you have six regional courts that are meant to be little mini replicas of the first initial court, which is great because often when we replicate success, we're trying to move it somewhere. We're trying to move it across cultural boundaries. We're trying to move it in across um, sectors and all sorts of things can go sideways. Here we've got same culture, same sector. And then the other is that alternative dispute resolution, mm-hmm. uh, kind of simply pretrial mediation, was one of the specific mechanisms that the commercial court pioneered that was attributed uh, in large part to its ability to handle a very, very large caseload and a short time to case completion. So that was something the uh, Ministry of Justice has kind of taken up and made available to high courts throughout the country. They're rolling it out over time. So that's another opportunity to dig into and understand because there's a two-part sort of conditional. One is, does a justice use the use alternative dispute resolution or not? It's available to them. Do they use it? And then conditional on using it, there's high degrees of variation in how successful they are in actually resolving cases with it. So it's a kind of two-step thing that allows us to unpack what are the things that are explaining why some people are using it and some are not, and the success of actually employing it. And so again, there's some working hypotheses derived from organizational literature and sociology to help us explain that. So that'll be uh, occupying a lot of the next five years of my life too. Well, I think we're we're all really looking forward to the next book after listening to all those new projects. Erin McDonald, thank you so much for coming to the New Books Network. Absolutely. It was a pleasure talking to you today.